Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today, we're going to do things a little bit differently, um, but I'll let Katina kind of take the lead to explain that. Yeah, so um, this is uh, Trans Awareness Week, um, and uh, that's basically a week that uh, celebrates and raises awareness about um, inequality and discrimination against transgender people. Um, and culminates in the Transgender Day of Remembrance, where uh, folks honor people who have been killed um, because of being transgender. Uh, And so it's basically a week to sort of raise greater awareness about the challenges that are faced in the community, also to celebrate the community. And because a lot of um, my work has been on sort of documenting the experiences of transgender employees at work, and also trying to understand better what cisgender employees can do um, to support transgender employees in the workplace, um, we thought that it might be a nice time to just sort of summarize that body of research uh, and give some tips for folks that want to create more trans-inclusive workplaces. I love it. I think it's such a good idea. We haven't really done that for other awareness months and things, and maybe we should. Yeah, true. I know we were thinking about this specific one just based on the work you've been doing, but I bet we could do this for other months. So sorry to everyone else that has a month that we've not done this for, (laughs) but maybe next year we could do a round of that because I think it is important. But I'm really excited to hear about the summaries of this research. I know you know it very well and bring a really good perspective and expertise in it. Um, So I'm excited to hear what you have to share. Yeah. Thanks so much. And uh, before I share, uh, just say a little bit about what's going on. How are you doing tonight? How's your week going? Well, it's Monday and it already feels like it should be Friday. So (laughs) that tells you anything about my week. (laughs) Um, (laughs) It's a bit bonkers, but We had a really fun weekend. Um, So we're going to Florida for Thanksgiving. And uh, this year, my sister is actually sharing the holiday with her boyfriend. Like, usually they would each go to their own families. And this Mm. year, she's going to his Thanksgiving. And so she had, like, a panic that she can't have Thanksgiving with our family. So since (laughs) I'm going to Florida and since she's not going to be here either, we did fakesgiving this weekend and um actually it worked out better because my cousin that lives in denver can rarely come out for thanksgiving because he usually works kind of closer or on that day and so he was able to come out so we had like a full-blown thanksgiving on saturday and it was really fun that's awesome that's super exciting i'm very glad yeah i mean i i love um thanksgiving dinner is like my favorite dinner of all eternity so um that's very exciting. Um, and yeah, we're doing, we're going to Brennan's side, um, for Thanksgiving and then maybe stopping back at, um, my aunt's house, um, afterwards where my parents are going to be having Thanksgiving, but my cousin is getting married. Uh, actually, um, my aunt Barb, who is a big worker being fan, it's her son, um, is getting married to this amazing, amazing person and so they're getting married um their wedding weekend starts the day after thanksgiving and so their wedding is saturday after thanksgiving so um because we're spending that whole weekend with my side of the family we're doing uh you know pretty much brendan's family on thanksgiving day um but 
it'll be really nice. And then um, the day after their wedding, we're going to go to the place where we got married because it's very close by to where they got married. And we're going to go with my parents and my brother to have like a little a little afternoon jaunt at the winery. <laughs> That's really cute, though. That'll be nice yeah. to go back and see it. And then yes. so fun for all the family stuff. And yay, congrats to Aunt Barb and her family. Yeah. Um, super exciting. But I do love, I'm so jealous of the fact that you live close, like your, both of your parents live close enough to each other that you can go to Brendan's yeah. and then go to um, yours That's after. Because we used to do that. When Danny's parents lived in California, we used to do that all the time. It was always like, my family tends to eat Thanksgiving dinner fairly early, like three. And then his family would eat it like at a more normal dinner time. And so then we would, I mean, it was like the most insane amount of eating in one day, but we would be able to do both. Um, and then now they're in Florida. Ugh, can't Boo. do both. <laughs> Boo, boo, boo. No, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty nice. Um, and we've generally been able to do that. But um, but yeah, I feel like um, I feel like it'll be a nice, relaxing time of gratitude upcoming uh, for us. And um, I guess we should also probably announce that next week we won't have an episode uh, because of that. So uh, don't yep. look for one. Yes. Yes. We're going to have a long weekend with our families. Hope you do too. And then we'll reconvene with content the week after. <laughs> reconvene with content. Yeah. Meaning <laughs> we will record another episode for you. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah. So in the meantime, um, as we're gearing up for uh, this week, um, that's, you know, leading into Thanksgiving week. Um, I think it's a good time to think about um, how we can not only be grateful, but also give back. And um, for folks who are listening, who are cisgender, meaning not part of the transgender community, um, I think that there are uh, some really concrete things based on our research that folks can do. Um, and so hopefully this gives a uh, some ideas for people about what they might do um, and how they might approach creating more trans inclusive workplaces. Um, I don't know if it would be helpful for me to just give some background on just the research in general and kind of how we got started with it. Yeah, that's a good idea. Okay, cool. So um, when I was uh, at Penn State and Patricia, you already know this, but just for people who are listening, um, I was doing a degree that was dual in psychology and gender and women's studies and as a result of that my dissertation project ended up being about how members of same-sex same-sex couples manage work and family and um, we've done an episode on that before actually um, and what I found was that they uh, experienced this additional layer of work family conflict which was related to perceptions of stigma about their family so they couldn't talk about their family freely they couldn't talk about what they did in the work on the weekends in the workplace. They felt uncomfortable friending people on social media, for example. There were times where maybe everybody in the workplace knew, but then a client might ask a question about like, you know, it's a, it's a man and someone says, uh, you know, do you have a wife or something? And then they feel like they can't reveal because they don't know if the person's asking in that way because they wouldn't be open to them being married to another man or not. So I got involved in doing this research and through that I was interviewing a bunch of people and really learning about a lot of the challenges and struggles that people were facing in the workplace in the LGB community. 
And um, I got involved in some LGBT activist work through that. Like um, I was the um, cisgender like rep to the um, LGBT commission for uh, equity at Penn State. And so sort of like uh, serving as like an ally representative that I got elected to that um, commission. And so I got to see at like the university level how LGBT activism was working and um I was involved in some community groups and things of that nature. Uh, So I started to just kind of learn a lot. And one of the things that I realized from a research perspective um, and, and somewhat from a practice perspective is that everybody says LGBT, but a lot of the research that we have and a lot of the activist work that goes on is really around LGB communities and the T often gets overlooked. And so as a sort of, entry point into that research I was noticing that all these articles would say LGBT you know a paper about LGBT discrimination and then you would go in and they would say well we didn't have any transgender people in our sample but someone else should do that right so um there was this there was this like clear gap in the literature that people didn't really understand what trans folks were facing in the workplace and so um we thought that it might be good to start documenting the problem so that we might start being able to come up with accurate solutions to the problems people were facing. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense um, that you were able to fill that gap and it makes, unfortunately it makes sense that the gap probably existed too, right? There's historically not been as much attention paid in that area. Mm -hmm. So I'm not surprised and I'm glad that you were able to come in and, and start fixing that problem. So I appreciate your solution, solution oriented approach to it. Thank um, you. <laughs> but it is, uh, it is unfortunate that like, you know, through all these like random ways of how you got involved, that's where you found this, this gap instead of just, you know, the people that were writing someone else should do this at some point, didn't go back and just do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also something else to just note, um, is that, you know, it's kind of odd because myself and the other folks doing this work are not members of the transgender community. And it's fully our goal to like hand over this work to transgender folks um, who are interested in doing it. I think there are a couple of issues in sort of um, standing back and waiting for people to do that. And one issue is that there aren't very many um, individuals in organizational sciences, like in management departments or in IO psych departments who are out as trans. So there aren't very many people who um, are out, who are doing research in this space, Um, certainly don't want to out people by doing this research. Um, And there also is no mandate that says that if you are trans and you're a researcher in this space, that you need to do research on transgender employees, right? Right. Um, And so... It's kind of also like this burden of, yeah, it would be really nice if the research teams were reflective of um, the population themselves, but it's also, uh, you know, a highly underrepresented population. And then on top of it, people already might feel visible because of their trans status. And then to also study trans employees and trans experiences might make people feel hyper visible or they might be not interested. Right. Which is completely legit. So, um, so we're kind of viewing this as, uh, our, like we're sort of starting a conversation, but we're more than happy to like pass off the conversation and let someone else finish it. Um, and we are collaborating with, um, trans folks on our projects at this point, but 
early on, um, we had put out like a call um, in PSYOPs Magazine, the Industrial Organizational Psychologist, for people who wanted to collaborate from the community and didn't get a response. And we kind of figured, you know, it was probably one of these issues cropping up. But instead of just having there not be any research on this topic um, until, you know, we became aware of folks that were wanted to work on this from the community, we thought, well, let's take we and also we kind of took some risk in doing this too because we faced some backlash in the review process and things like that. So um, let's us start the conversation and then be happy to pass it on. So I thought that is just like a, not a disclaimer, but just important context probably. Yeah, no, that that is good to know. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of, like you said, a lot of potential reasons why you didn't find collaborators to help mm-hmm. initially. Um, but hopefully there's hopefully you know just having someone talk about it and actually like you said get through the review process can encourage others to feel more confident in potentially tackling these topics if they're interested in it that is yeah it sets a precedent I think so so some of the things that were an issue in the literature one was that there was very little work that was done to actually like quantify the experiences that people were having and to make the case that their experiences were any different from anyone else's. And even though, um, you know, based on everything that we know about what trans folks face in society, it's sort of, you know, bonkers to think that anyone would argue that they might have different experiences in the workplace in the workplace or might face discrimination or bias. But there's always going to be that argument until you have the data to demonstrate that that's the case. Lots of big think tanks um, like the National Center for Transgender Equity um, and other work uh, survey data had kind of demonstrated the rates of discrimination in um, in trans populations. And so um, we were not the first people to do that. Like, for example, um, in 2015, there was a big survey um, that showed that um, of all uh, the trans individuals re- residing in the United States who took the survey, so uh, like 28,000 people, that 77% of people said that they took steps to avoid mistreatment at work, like hiding their gender identity or delaying tr- gender transition. Um, and Terrible. it also, yeah, and like uh, almost 70% said that they faced a negative outcome, like being fired or being denied a promotion. Um because of their gender identity um and then like a quarter of people um reported other types of mistreatment um uh more subtle types of mistreatment uh for um uh, uh in addition to those other more blatant forms of trans of uh, uh um discrimination so anyway there is a lot going on um, that is negative. But in our research, um, we also found in a daily survey that about half of the participants experienced at least some discriminatory behavior on a daily basis. And the items were things like being the target of transphobic remarks, being ignored, being pressured to act in traditionally gendered ways. Um, and a, and that study and in another study that we had done before that um, on employees that were uh, transitioning in the workplace we found that um, the level of negativity that people face is really high and a core factor that can impact all of these negative experiences is to kind of look and say like, okay, well, who's causing these negative experiences? And the root cause of these negative experiences is cisgender people, right? Like they're facing discrimination and bias from somebody um, Mm -hmm. and negative work environment from somebody. And so if we can understand how cisgender people might 
do better, be better, and create more inclusive workplaces, we might be able to actually cut down this problem that others and we also documented was pretty sizable. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, it has to be coming from somebody. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, So what did you do then to figure out how cisgender folks can stop being awful? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So um, So we did a few things. And in our studies on sort of documenting um, the scope of the problem, some of them included some other interesting insights. Like in the study about transitioning employees, we found that coworker acceptance was a much bigger predictor of workplace outcomes than just transitioning by itself. So there's all these, I think, um, narratives in the LGBT community about like, just come out, just be yourself, just be authentic. And like, that's great. But we found that being authentic comes with some risks, right? Because we know that people are opening themselves up to bias and discrimination. And really the thing that predicted positive outcomes for folks was if coworkers accepted them for who they were and um, and really authentically accepted their identity. So we started to see these threads that coworkers really mattered, things that coworkers did mattered. And so we started to think about this idea of courage and how cisgender folks might demonstrate courage in the workplace to stand up for the rights of transgender employees. And so um, we looked at the literature on courage and we actually have an episode on this too, but if anyone's interested, but we looked at the literature on courage and found that it was pretty underdeveloped. And so we developed this concept of oppositional courage, kind of pushing up against the status quo to challenge um, sort of unfair practices to try to gain greater equity um, for a particular group. And we found that when cisgender people enacted oppositional courage, so they took risks to try to stand up for um, greater rights for trans colleagues that it sent a message of value to trans employees. So they felt better, their self-esteem went up and that that had positive impacts on their emotional exhaustion that went down and their job satisfaction went up. And so we found that like these acts of, uh, standing up for what's right, defending people from bias, educating other cisgender people, advocating for better policies, um, tend to send these positive signals of value that then improve, Um, workplace outcomes. So one thing that cisgender people can do based on our research in terms of like thinking about scoping the problem and finding solution is to stand up for what's right even when it's hard. Yeah. So it sounds like it's more than just I accept you and that's it. We're just going to move on. It's like there's another another layer that we can do to impact this. Right. So if I as an individual am accepting of my trans colleague that isn't necessarily enough right be uh, because there's other things that might be creating problems so being able to use my voice to to support and help them is more is important yeah exactly yeah and i think like um in our research we found that um in across studies we always did qualitative work so we were interviewing people things of that nature and so um you know across the things that we found that people wanted in the workplace. Um, There's this element of cisgender people really being willing to take those risks. So, um, you know, being willing to take risks to advocate for better policies, being able to take risks to ensure that people have um, supportive transition experiences, um, taking risks to make sure that, you know, you're advocating that 
uh, people should be trained on trans-specific content um, and DEI training. Like that can be a controversial thing. So I think this element of standing up for things is across all the different pieces potentially, depending upon how far along your workplace is in getting your workplace trans-inclusive. Um, we also found some specific like bare bone things that people might advocate for. Um, so when you're standing up for uh, the rights of folks and you're thinking, okay, well, what should I advocate for? Um, things came up in our interviews very frequently around bathroom access and making sure that people have access to the bathroom of their choice, having um, gender neutral dress codes. So like these are professional articles of clothing and anyone can wear any of these articles of clothing um making sure that people um like a lot of companies now are having policies where you include your pronouns in your email signature or on name badges um but even at a very basic level just making sure that the system that HR uses to keep track of people's names um is accurate and up to date and that it doesn't contain old names that uh would create situations that would be very uncomfortable for people um so advocating for those sorts of policies or medical coverage for transition, um, uh, if people are going through medical procedures or surgeries. Um, so all of those sorts of things are things you might advocate for, I think, to uh, or, yeah, including transgender content and diversity training is another one, making sure that people are aware. Those are all sort of like formal things that you can do. But then there's also a lot of informal stuff like in conversations, uh, disrupting things that people might say that are not inclusive um, and creating that like informal supportive culture where you're willing to just like pull a person aside and say, hey, what you said might not have been in the most inclusive thing. Here's what you might try next time or here's why that's important. Um, so we kind of found that that advocacy piece was a key and that those are sorts of things that you might advocate for um, based on what trans folks told us was important. Um, but also it's really about that culture of being willing to have a tough conversation, um, even, even if it's, uh, you know, somebody that you're otherwise friends with or that holds power in the organization. Yeah. The, the informal piece is really interesting because it's, it's awkward and it's tough. I think maybe this is just me, but I think it's sometimes that can be harder than even just saying like, I think we should have these types of benefits or this kind of support and this kind of, you know, we need to put pronouns here or whatever bathroom access. Those things feel a little more straightforward than being like, Hey, my manager just used a term that isn't appropriate or made a joke that maybe isn't great. Um, and then moving them as, you know, to the side or however you want to address it and actually addressing it. That's definitely a lot harder and takes that courage that you're talking about. Right. Um, but I think it makes a lot of sense, right? If you are really, truly going to be an ally to help the problem, you have to do these types of things and take these steps that are maybe not easy and not comfortable. Um, on a side note, though, when it comes to the more formal pieces, I don't know if you know this, so I'm just going to ask, do you have any data on like how many organizations actually have these types of policies? Because I was just seeing something on LinkedIn today about an organization that like pays for IVF for people, which like mm -hmm. obviously is a really great policy and probably fairly rare. Um, so I'm wondering like how many companies even do like the medical support, for example? Yeah, I don't know a specific number of how many companies do it. I know that um, the Human Rights Campaign has done a really good job of um, pushing 
people toward best practices in this arena. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and, and for folks that don't know, the human rights campaign is, um, uh, an organization that sort of, uh, created a checklist for, uh, companies to be considered best in class for LGBT inclusivity. And, um, companies really want to be a best of employer. Um, and so like, I know that most of the like a like a vast majority of of folks on that list in the Fortune 500 have like anti-discrimination policies based on gender identity um, and uh, have other sorts of like LGBT ERGs and things like that. But um, I'm not sure the number that actually cover medical procedures or transitions specifically, but I will say that the number of those types of things uh, being offered have gone up a lot. That's good. That's really good news. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I like that. Yeah. I think, um, I think it's not the most uh, popular option, but I remember thinking that the number, like, like it's definitely more than like a quarter would mm. have it, but I can't, in the Fortune 500. Yeah. Um, but I can't remember exactly what the number was. But yeah. Um, so I think I mean, one one thing that I think is great about what HRC did, even though there's some complications around it, is that like if you give companies a checklist and a and a badge, like they'll get after it. So from a, a policy <laughs> perspective, they did a great job of pushing people to institute more inclusive policies because that's part of their checklist to get this like. Um, best in class for LGBT employers. Uh, so anyway, um, I think that that was good. But but yeah, so it's kind of both this like formal pushing for policies and practices so that you have some guardrails, but then also creating this supportive environment. And I think something that's important to know is that like the riskier the behavior is, actually the more of a signal of value it sends to trans employees. And so um, when it's really, really tough, if your goal really is to make that person or people feel more included at work and your goal really is to send that, that message to them that they do matter in the workplace, especially when it's risky, that's when you can have the biggest impact. So if everybody in your company is already on board and you're in a company that, you know, is fairly inclusive comparatively and, you know, you, uh, you know, say something to a colleague that said something that wasn't super inclusive that's good, but like the person won't see you as really going out of your way to show like, hey, your your like life and your equity really matters to me as when it's like a tougher scenario. So particularly when the situation is tough, that's when people can kind of tell who's like actually committed to doing this. Um, so that's when you should especially think about standing up. It's the most impactful. But I'll add one caveat to that, which is that in our most recent research, which is not yet published, but just like in the uh, phase of being written up, we found that there are some caveats to how people do this. So if you're standing up for people and trying to create more inclusive environments in a way that's very egoistic, it's about you and like you want to be front and center and you want to be, you know, the main topic of conversation, you want to have the mic and like it's about like look at me and what a good person I am versus doing it in a humble manner where you're really approaching it by like 
okay, you know, I want to learn from people. I want to understand how I can best do this. I'll take feedback about how I could do better next time. Um, doing these acts with humility actually has positive impacts um, on uh, folks that are witnessing these acts such that they become grateful and then their job attitudes go up. But if not, they can become resentful that you're doing that because it doesn't really feel like you're doing it for any other reason than trying to make yourself look like a good person to people who would think that that makes you a good person. Um, and so that uh, that kind of act actually has the opposite effect on uh, folks within the trans population that uh, they become more resentful and their job attitudes go down. That makes sense, though. Like, I feel like there's this um, kind of like it's almost like trendy like this performative like inclusion right like I am so great because I accept these people that are different than me in whatever aspect right not just um, in this specific context but I feel like there's this this vibe that some people are just very performative in the way that they're yep. being inclusive um like I'm inclusive of these people I'm inclusive of those people I'm inclusive of that person over there and then everyone like look at me look at how great I am and that just turns everybody off around them right <laughs> they're just like this is not you know not just uh and I I would be interested and I don't know if this is part of the data that you have but I'm gonna guess that it's not only the trans person in the room that's witnessing this that feels that way, but probably everybody else in the room feels that way too, right? Because you just feel like, okay, great. Like, we yeah. get it. We get it. You're fine with everything. You're so inclusive. Yeah. You're so woke. You're so whatever. Um, and that's just annoying. Like, uh, no one likes that person. But it makes but it makes sense that if someone's, like, truly genuine and is just trying to, you know, make a difference and an impact and really cares about the other person that they're supporting then that's going to come off a lot differently like you can see through the the woke person the quote in quotes like the <laughs> the I'm so woke person um versus the person that's just actually just being cool and supportive um so I I, I find it really interesting that that data turned out that way because I'm sure I'm sure everyone kind of intuitively feels that way sometimes, um, but maybe this can get the message across, like, stop trying to be the most woke in the room and just be a normal person that, like, cares about other people. <laughs> yep, exactly. And and that's in qualitative data and in quantitative data, we have found that people are picking up on that, that they don't like it when that's the attitude and that it actually has the reverse effect on the target group and um, interestingly, we're also seeing that there can be some mixed reactions from other um, majority group members, um, depending upon how uh, how much the person that's witnessing it feels competent to do a similar behavior themselves. So oh. um, there's more to come on that. But basically, there are mixed effects to standing up based on how widespread it is that your colleagues feel confident that they can do the same thing. So creating more awareness or comfort with doing the right thing in the workplace and also from the target group, how egoistic the behavior is. So this is all to say that there are some caveats around it, but in all the studies, 
um, the basic impact of standing up for what's right is much more positive than negative. So it's always a positive. Um, it's always a positive impact um, overall, but it gets a little more nuanced once we add some other things into the equation. So, um, so you know, feel com- comfortable if you're a cisgender person, you see bias happening, you know that there are better policies that could take place in the workplace, you know that there are cisgender colleagues who uh, are not educated in these areas and you might know some things that could help them um, learn, feel comfortable and confident to do that. Um, but just know that there's some more to come around doing it with your head in the right place um, and also um, making sure that uh, you're not making other people like you feel ashamed through your action but rather that you're like making them feel inspired that they could do the same thing and that's more of a contextual issue but um but yeah so I think if we're thinking about what can cisgender people do you know the primary point of our work has been okay you know we spent some time defining a problem unfortunately transgender people face a lot of discrimination in the workplace what can cisgender people do to change this one of the central answers that we found is to display these acts of oppositional courage. And as you're advocating, thinking about the different types of policies that we said, thinking about ensuring that um, there's content in diversity training that is relevant to um, transgender employees, making sure that you you have comprehensive benefits, benefit plans, things of that nature. Um, and also, you know, when you're um, educating people or defending people, Um, that you're coming at it from a place where you're creating uh, a culture of support and you're doing it in a way that would be well received by uh, members of the community and hopefully other people too. So um, creating that supportive environment is really important. Having the policies as a guardrail is also important and oppositional courage can kind of get you both of those things. Awesome. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can totally see that right and like I like your point of do not be worried if you're genuine in this you know people will recognize that it's not about your ego and you can be supportive so just because there's some caveats I think as long as you're not going into it to be about yourself then you're fine so go in and be supportive help your colleagues um, that might need some support and or you know or might be um, looking to to signals as to whether or not they are valued and important in the workplace and you can make a big impact on somebody this way so I I love it I feel like it's it's not easy I'm not gonna say it's easy to do but it's not hard either <laughs> that makes sense yes yeah yeah totally things that might seem little actually end up being kind of big yeah um and so yeah yeah so I think um that's those are the key takeaways and this has been over the course of um, like three, four different studies now, um, and uh, and then also this HBR paper, which we'll link to in the um, show notes, so you can get a sense of it. And and um, the HBR paper was just incorporated into a McKinsey report about uh, transgender workplace experiences. That was pretty cool. Um, so um, happy that things are getting some pickup. Yeah, that's great. I mean, two really big outlets for this work so hopefully that means we're going to see more impacts more changes in workplaces um, so that everyone that's in the workplace can feel comfortable and be themselves 
and really just focus on what they're there for the work right like everyone's there to meet a specific goal so let's just work together in a positive way Um, I really love that you shared this with us and gave us your tips and some sneak peeks into your future research that will be well future publications it's not future research it's been done but future publications (laughs) um, that you know, is exciting for all of us. You know, I think that's a great benefit of having you on my team is being able to hear the sneak peeks. So thank you for sharing those too. Thank you. Thank you for listening and uh, hope everyone enjoyed. Yeah. For all of our listeners, if you have any questions, feedback, thoughts, concerns, you can always email us at contact at workerbeing.com. You can find us on our social media at workerbeing, also on our website, workerbeing.com. And on YouTube now at Worker Being. <laughs> and uh, as we mentioned before, we're going to be taking the week off next week. So have a fantastic Thanksgiving if you're in the US. Um, and we will chat with you all soon. Thanks for listening. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabar and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Thank you.